Our sermon text this morning is a short one. It's the end of, of Mark chapter 12. It's Mark 12, verses 41 to 44. And this is our custom of, out of respect for the Word of God, I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark 12, verses 41 to 44. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. It says, And he, that is Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that you give us your word, that we are not left to grope around in the dark to try to figure out who you are or to know the way of salvation through faith in Christ or even to know how you would have us to live. And so we pray that you would once again teach us your word, work in us by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's often, it's often been said by people much wiser than myself that if you want to kind of get a, a checkup on yourself, if you, if you want to know where you are, so to speak, in your walk with the Lord, you only need to see or check two things. There's more than that, but two things, and that is your, your calendar and your checkbook. I know nobody uses checkbooks anymore, anymore right? But, but your calendar and your checkbook, in other words, how we spend our time and how we spend our money tells us what our true priorities really are. We tend to reserve those two things for what really is important to us and maybe even what's central in our lives. Uh, that's what we spend those two particular things on couple things in scripture. The Lord uh, requires one day in seven, the fourth commandment, right? One day in seven to be kept holy as a Sabbath to the Lord, a holy day of uh, a day of holy rest and worship. Uh, it's set aside to us as a blessing, not as a burden. If we think of the Lord's day as a burden, we're thinking about it wrongly, thinking about it backwards. It's intended for our good. How few of us, though, are mindful of it and sincerely keep at least seek to keep the fourth commandment in a way that's pleasing to God and also in a way that's pleasing to us. Doing God's will isn't supposed to be a chore. It's supposed to be a blessing. So the Lord requires in his commandments basically a seventh of our time. And how we, how we treat that commandment, I think, shows a great deal about how, we, how well we've come along in our walk with, with the Lord. The second thing, the Lord requires a tithe. Now, everybody likes fractions. Our kids are learning fractions right now. Uh, but a tithe is a tenth, a tenth of our income. Now, I'm not sure which one of those we resist more, the time or the, or the income. But that, you know, that tenth, the, the tenth of our income that God requires in his word, uh, who has provided that to us to begin with? Who's provided everything we have, your breath, your life, your very being, your, your work, your job, whatever that may be? But God has asked and required one-tenth of what he has entrusted to us, and that has not changed. And in a sense, kind of like, it's kind of like coming to church. It's coming to worship, to gather with God's people. 
it's kind of the bare minimum. It's not, it's not something we get a, a medal for. Oh, I, I come to church every Sunday. Well, good. <laughs> You're supposed to come to church every Sunday. It's for your good. It's like asking for a medal for eating your dinner. You know, you're, it's good for you to do, you know. Kids don't always like to eat their dinner, but. Uh, now, we are to be mindful of the needs of those around us on top of that, right? Um, just as the tithe provides for the continuation of the work of the gospel, both here and abroad in foreign and, and domestic missions, our offerings also are to provide for those who are the least of these among us, the widows and the orphans. Now, here in our text, uh, we're faced with what is often a very uncomfortable subject, right? And one that many of us don't like to talk about. Many of us, especially in the church, don't like to talk about this subject. And that subject is, of course, money. In particular, this, this text deals with our giving. Now, you know, maybe as soon as you saw the text, you thought, oh, no, <laughs> I came on the wrong. I should have picked a different Sunday to, to come. Um, now, the reasons for our discomfort in talking about these things, I think, are are many. Uh, they are in some ways obvious. Um, think about this. You know, these things uh, are as uncomfortable for the person behind the pulpit sometimes as they are for the people that are sitting there listening. At least they should be. Um, in many ways, we have the same reasons for being uncomfortable about these, these kinds of things. Times can be tough. They're very often tough for us. Things are tight. Sometimes it feels like everywhere you turn, almost literally, someone's got their hand out asking you for money. There, there are parts of, of towns that you drive through, and literally every stoplight, there's someone standing there with a sign asking for your money. Now, God, uh, who gives us all things, requires a tenth, a tithe. Our government often seems to feel entitled to much more than that, maybe four times or five times that amount, which, you know, when that's the case, there's not much left. There's not much left for charitable giving, for taking care of the least of these. Our national debt, I believe, is a scandal. By doing that, we are robbing our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. That is immoral. It's unacceptable. But how many of us who complain about such things as that nevertheless live beyond our means? and are swimming in a, in, a, in a drowning in credit card debt and other kinds of debt. Those things stifle our generosity as well, don't they? These are things that we need to think about. Not only that, but when it comes to the church, how many scandals have you and I probably witnessed through your life? How many scandals involving money have you seen in the church, whether it's the greedy televangelist, the so-called prosperity gospel preacher that preaches a false gospel that is not a true gospel? It's not a gospel at all. In fact, in the prosperity gospel, who's the one that prospers? The preacher, the false teacher, not the people sending their checks to the false, false, false prophet who's not from the Lord. And he only, profit, he only prospers in this life. You know, God's going to make that right someday. Someday that check is going to bounce. and that, that bill is going to come due for that false Preacher, but you know, maybe not even the big names, not even just the you know the Robert Tiltons and the Joel Osteens of the world that that are you know bilking people out of their money that that uh, do not deserve the title pastor or teacher of God's word. Even in local churches, how many of you probably, if I asked you to raise your hand, I bet a bunch of my hand would go up. Maybe your hand would go up too. How many of you have been to a church where all they seemed to talk about was money up front, and that you've seen that money? entrusted to them, sometimes sacrificially so, mishandled, even embezzled by people in charge. You know, it's hard to give money already. It's harder to give money when you don't trust the people handling that money to do with it what they tell you it's for. 
Is it really for the work of the kingdom? Very often, I have to say, it doesn't seem like it is. Very often, it seems like it's to, to build up the trophies of the pastor and the elders of the church, maybe make the building that much fancier, nicer, that kind of thing. We, we've all seen that kind of a church. Maybe this morning when you came in, you know, some of you, it's your first Sunday here, and you thought, oh, great, here we go again. The church I was just at did this exact same thing, and here we go Again, how many of you, I know some of you have told me this literally, how many of you have invited a friend or neighbor or loved one or coworker or some such person to come join you for worship at church only to be told that they want nothing to do with, with church or organized religion? And why is that? Almost the first thing out of their mouth is what? All they care about is what? My money and not my soul. They don't really care for my well-being. They're not really in it. For the Lord. Now, in some cases, that's a cop out. That's an easy thing to say. But in a lot of cases, there's a little bit of a ring of truth, maybe too much of a ring of truth to that, to what they say. And in case we we forget, you know, we always say context is key. In the verses right before this, Jesus himself points to one such example, doesn't he? What does he say? Remember, he says, beware of the scribes. And what's what's one of the things he says the scribes often did? Verse verse 38 uh, they or verse 40, they devour widows' houses. Something, you know, what's the saying? The more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, very, very often religious professionals, pastors, whatever you want to call us, are really in it for the money. And they don't seem to have much of a, a, a scruple about who they get that money from or how. Devouring a widow's house or her, her livelihood is a, is a shameful thing. And Jesus made no bones about pointing it out. Beware of the scribes who, who do these things. Now, at the same time, having said all of that, if you've read your Bible, if you've been reading you know, the whole Bible from front cover to back, you've probably noticed that the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of money and about the subject of giving. Jesus himself, just sticking to the New Testament, for the sake of time, Jesus himself had quite a bit to say regarding this subject. He tells us, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, his most well-known sermon and, and uh, group of teaching in the Gospels in Matthew 5 through 7. In Matthew 6, verses 20 to 21, what does he say there? He says to, that you and I are to lay up treasure for ourselves where? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth, because where our treasure is, what? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, that's how you really tell where your priorities are and what you really love. Remember the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, not that, not that long ago in Mark's gospel as we've been going through it, you know, comes up to Jesus and says, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says what you and I would never say, but he's right. And he has a reason for saying it. You know, you know the commandments, Right. Honor your father and mother. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, uh, don't commit adultery, all this stuff. And what does he say? All these I've what? Kept from my youth. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, you like one thing. One, you want the secret? Here it is. You want the, 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 the key to unlock the door to heaven? There's one thing you lack. And what did he tell him to do? Remember, he was a rich young ruler. He says, take everything you have, just like this, this widow did. Take everything you have and sell it and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and, and come follow me. And what does it say? He went away sad or grieved, for he had many possessions. Why did Jesus point into the commandments? Why did Jesus tell him to sell all that he had? Is it because you can get to heaven by selling your stuff? If, I'll say this, 
If Jesus came to you today, if his word actually said, everybody in this room, take every earthly thing you own, your car, your house, your clothes, your whatever, sell it and give it away and you can go to heaven. You should all rush out the door right now, contact your broker, your real estate agent, and sell everything you have. And it, it would be a bargain. It would be like, you know, it would be like giving a slip of paper you know, made of, you know, written on with crayon for Fort Knox. It, it would, you'd be nuts not to do it, but we, we still wouldn't do it, would we, most of us? We wouldn't, we wouldn't think of that. That's not the gospel, though. Jesus doesn't say, sell all you have, and then, you know, you'll, you'll, that'll earn your way to heaven. What he's showing him is that he loved his stuff more than he loved God. He loved his stuff more than he loved other people. What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He did neither. So all of his, all these I've kept since my youth, had he? And Jesus was trying to show him that. In fact, what does he say? How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for what? A camel, it's a really strange picture, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples were like, well, then who can be saved? If rich people can't go to heaven, what hope do we have? Because they had the whole thing backwards. Elsewhere in that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in, in six, Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in case we've missed the point, he connects the dots. You cannot serve God and money. We don't think like that. We think, well, no, my money serves me. It's mine. Now, sometimes the money is the master. Sometimes the things are the thing that control everything you do, that set your priorities for you, and Jesus warns us about that. We could spend half the day, we won't, uh, listing places where Jesus alone talks about our money and how, how we set our hearts upon those things. And, uh, you know, he had no problem talking about it. And why is that? Just like the rich and ruler, Jesus knows uh, clearly that we have a tendency uh, in, our, to, in our hearts, to make an idol out of things. Not a statue, not, not something you literally bow down to, but we have a tendency to put other things besides God at the center of our lives. And one of the things that, maybe the most common thing on this earth that people put in the place of God is money, is their possessions. What they can see with their hands and feel with their hands and see with their eyes. Well, likewise, the Apostle Paul you might be shocked how often he brings it up in his letters in the New Testament. We went over this in our men's breakfast a little while ago, and in preparation, I started reading through the epistles, kind of you know, skimming over them to see where Paul might talk about it. And I have to say, I was shocked. It never occurred to me how often Paul brings it up. It's practically in every single epistle he has written in the Bible. Every single one. He talks about giving. He talks about money. He talks about these things. You know, if, if you read 2 Corinthians, he spends two full chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, the entire two chapters talking about this relief, this, this offering they were collecting for the, the saints who were in a famine in, in the city of Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. Wait, there's more, right? He doesn't just talk about it to the churches, Corinth and whatnot. He even singles out the pastors. In his pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus, they were his kind of his apprentice pastors. He was training them up into how they should do the work of ministry. And I don't think it's without reason that what does he do? He warns Timothy in particular, telling them that, telling them that the love of money 
And the context is ministry. It's the love of money in ministry that is what? A root of all kinds of evils. That's true in general too, but he's telling it to a pastor. He's saying, beware of this. Beware of the love of money. And he says it's through this craving, 1 Timothy 6.10, it's through this craving. What craving? The love of money. Through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's, it's an all-pervasive problem. It's an all-pervasive thing. And so if we're going to preach the whole counsel of God as a church, if we're going to teach the whole counsel of God, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20, uh, that will necessarily involve, at times, teaching and preaching that deals with the subject of money and of giving. Um, when the scripture talks about it, we should talk about it. And we should do so unashamedly as it's for our edification. If it's in the scripture, is it for your good or for your harm? It's for your good if you're teaching and preaching scripturally and not twisting it to suit your own, your own ends. And so as often as the scriptures bring a subject up, whether it be this or anything else, we should be happy to hear it. We should know that it's needful for each of us to hear it, even if it just feels like a reminder of, of sorts. Well, let's look at our text itself, a short text as it is. And the first thing I think we should take notice of is what Jesus takes notice of, right? And it's the widow's offering. The first thing is the widow's offering here at the end of Mark chapter 12. Remember, this is after the the triumphal entry. This is the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. This This is leading up to the cross. He has entered Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's been badgered and pestered by the scribes, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everybody else, the Herodians. People are trying to trip him up. And finally, they can't. They give up, and nobody dares ask him any more questions. He tells the, the people, beware of the scribes. And now he kind of is pulling aside and just teaching the disciples. From here on out, this is kind of the last, uh, this is the beginning of the end of his public teaching ministry. The next chapter is all about what we think of as the end times and whatnot. But he's narrowing his teaching to, to the disciples. And so what do we see him doing? We see him sitting down. Um, and, and looking at the offerings. Now, remember when he said, beware of the scribes? Remember the reason, one of the reasons he gave was that they devour widows' houses. Well, what's the next thing you see in the text, in our text? He goes from reminding them that these scribes, these greedy scribes, devour widows' houses, saying, oh, by the way, look, there's one poor widow walking into, into the temple. They're still, they're still in the temple. I don't think it's an accident that that's what Jesus does, what, what he points them to and what Mark points us to in his writing of this gospel one verses 41 to 42 mark writes and he that is jesus sat down opposite the treasury in other words he sat where he had a view of it right the the offering boxes so to speak he sat sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box many rich people put in large sums it was a good day at church right Uh, and a now literally it's one it's, it's more distinct than just A. It's one. One poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, the first thing that may not jump off the page at you, but maybe it should, is that Jesus watched the offering. You know, if, as our men were passing the offering bags, I'm, I'm quite sure I did not look, uh, but I'm quite sure they weren't watching as you put whatever you put uh, into the offering bags. And if they had, what would you have done? You would have been probably a little bit offended, if not a lot. You'd have been like, excuse me, this is between me and the Lord, and it's none of your business, right? 
But Jesus was watching the offering. He watched what people gave. And he still does. Everything that we do in worship, whether it be our giving, our singing, our praying, our hearing and preaching the word of God, is done under the watchful eye of our Savior, who is the head of the church. He still sees and notices all. He takes notice of what we do and how. Now, how different might our giving be, not to mention our worship and even our lives in general, if we were to meditate on this great truth and to think about it? Keep it in mind that Jesus watches and sees. He notices everything we do. You know, what does Paul say? Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. You know, in your work, work unto the Lord and not unto men. How much harder would we work if we worked unto the Lord? You might, you might love your boss. You don't love him like you love Jesus. You'd work harder if you're working for the Lord. Jesus watches, Jesus sees, he notices How great of an encouragement I think this passage ought to be to those who faithfully and sacrificially give to the work of the gospel in the local church, missions, and the relief of the poor. Others may not see or notice, and they're probably not supposed to notice. Right? We're not supposed to, to, what does Jesus say? Don't blow a trumpet to let people know you're doing a good deed. We're, We're not really supposed to show that off, but you can be sure that Jesus Christ notices and is pleased by these things. And he's pleased as much or more by the gift of those who don't have that much as he is by those who give larger sums. Right? That's what this text clearly says. So I think let those of us who are poor or not so well-to-do, none of us probably think we're well-to-do, but you know, don't, don't be discouraged in your giving. If you're thinking to yourself as the offering bag goes by or whatever you're doing, contributing to, don't think, well, you know, I don't have much. It's not going to make a hill of beans of difference What's the point? Why does it matter? It certainly isn't, isn't much. Don't be discouraged in that. Is God short on cash? Does, is God broke? Sometimes we act like God's broke. Is God broke? No, God is not broke. He's not short on cash. He's able to multiply and use even the smallest gifts for great things. God is able to do far above and beyond what we ask or think. Now, humanly speaking, her offering didn't seem like much. If you were standing there, if I were standing there watching, uh, we probably wouldn't have given it much thought. We might have thought, oh, that's, that's a nice thought, lady. You know, Oh, that's a you know, nice intention, but it's really not going to do uh, much, much good. She gave two small copper coins, ESV says, which make up a penny, or the King James says a farthing. I don't know what a farthing is, but, but whatever the case is, they were the smallest coins they had. They were made of copper, you know, in a sense, you could say that if two little coins made up a penny, they had something smaller than a penny. Whatever it was, it was all that she had to live on. Now, from a worldly perspective, and very often I think we have a worldly perspective, even if we don't realize it, her offering was barely more than nothing. It probably wouldn't buy you bubblegum balls in our day if you still have those machines somewhere. We might be tempted, you and I might be tempted to think, why bother? What's the point? What good could that possibly do? Not only that, but her two cents or whatever it might have been worth, we don't really know what it was worth. Um, you know, it wouldn't make a lot of difference. And it, was, you know, it would have done her more good, wouldn't it? It's all she had to live on. I don't know how much food she could have gotten from it. But you know, from an earthly perspective, we might have said, wait, you know, no, what are you doing? You know, what are you going to eat today? If you put that in the offering, in the, in the offering uh, box there, at the temple, but not only did Jesus Christ notice her and see her offering, he singles her out for high praise, doesn't he? 
Jesus doesn't go to any of those rich folks that were giving at the temple that day. He doesn't condemn them. This isn't a socialist parable. Jesus isn't saying rich people bad, poor people good, right? That's not the point. Jesus doesn't say just look at those shameful rich people giving money to the church, to the temple. But what he does do is says, stop, guys, come here, look at this. He singles her out. Of all the people that gave, he singles her out for high praise. You know, most of us would probably be impressed by a large sum of money. And apparently that day there was a lot of people giving a lot of money there at the temple in verse 41. But Jesus wants to make sure his disciples notice this, this widow. You've got to see this. You've, you've got to notice what's going on here. And this is what he says in verses 43 to 44. He says, truly I say to you, the word truly is amen. It's literally the Greek word amen. It's, it's, a, it's like a solemn oath. You know, anything Jesus says is true. He doesn't have to say, surely I say to you, or truly, or amen, or any of that. But he wants to impress the importance of this upon his disciples. So he says, truly, or amen, I say to you, this poor widow, what he says, if, if you've read it before, it probably loses its punch, maybe. But think about it. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. He doesn't say, hey, this is nice. What a nice thought. She, you know, hers, if you look at it just the right way, hers is okay too. He says she gave more than they did. I'm guessing the treasurer at the, at the temple might have begged to differ. But Jesus is the one whose opinion matters. And he says she gave more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think he's saying, here's the ledger. Put her two little copper coins here. Here's the other side of the ledger. Put in everything else. And which one's worth more? The two little coins that wouldn't buy much of anything was worth more. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in what? Everything she had, all she had to live on. That's the money she had to her name. We don't know how she made her next meal. We don't know anything of, of the sort. The, here's a trick question. Who gave more? Well, Jesus tells us that she did. Not the ones who put the large amounts of money, but the one poor widow who put two small copper coins in the offering. You know, in other words, I think we need to be reminded of this again and again. The scripture says these things to us in different ways over and over again. Uh, Christian mentioned you know, when the Bible repeats something. Well, the Bible repeats this theme. God doesn't see things the way you and I do, often. Or rather, I should say, we don't see things the way that we should. What does Isaiah 55, 19 say? It says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. As God, the Lord told the prophet Samuel, when he talked about David, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Understatement, right? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. The Lord looks on the heart. So you could say that in some ways, you know, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his math is higher than our math. It's different. You've heard of the new math and common core math. Well, God's, God's arithmetic, his way of accounting, is often much different than we think. It's much different uh, than we tend to see things. For the Lord not only notices the widow's, what we would think of as an insignificant offering, but he accounts it as being more valuable than what everyone else gave, even the wealthy that day. Now, why is that? You could say a lot of reasons why that would be, but one is that she gave everything she had. It didn't matter to her. She's like, this is what I got. This is all I have. You know what? Someone else needs it more than I do. 
And she put it in, in the offering. It wasn't much, but it was all she had. And Jesus wants to make it plain to his disciples that she gave the most because she gave all. And why is it? God looks not just at the gift, he looks at the heart. He doesn't just notice the amount, he notices the proportion. And those things matter more than the actual number. Well, the second thing is, not just the widow's offering, but the widow's faith. You know, how could she do such a thing? That's the second point, the widow's faith. Now, the word faith, I know you're looking at the text and you're saying, hey, pastor, I don't, I don't see that there word that there in that text. You know, I don't see the word faith. I don't see the word believe. But, and that's true. But, you know, the evidence of her faith is all throughout this account. You know, it's much like if you've ever read the book of Esther. The book of Esther, does the, what word is conspicuously absent in the book of Esther? Some of you already know. God. God is nowhere spoken of explicitly in the book of Esther. Is God in the book of Esther? Yes. He's all through it. Right? When, when, when her uncle says, perhaps you were born for such a time as this, what was he saying? He didn't say God's name, but he's saying, hey, you know, God put you here for a reason. God is all, his providence is all through the book of Esther. Well, in the same kind of a way, I believe that this poor widow's faith is all through this account. I think it's one of the only things that really makes sense out of what she did that day at the temple. She may have had lots of reasons for giving. Maybe she's just a very kind, generous person. But one of the reasons had to be faith. How, why is that? How could she give without being trusting that the Lord would be faithful to provide for her, for her needs? What else could make sense of her giving everything she had to live on when that was everything she had to live on. What, what, was, she, what was she trusting God to do? Did, did she put that money in the offering and say to herself, well, I'm a dead person now. I'm never going to have another meal. You know, it's been nice knowing you all. You know, I won't see you next week probably. No, she, she trusted that God, who, who provides for the birds of the fields, right, the flowers of the fields, the birds of the air, that God was going to give her her next meal. And we have no doubt, I think, that God did exactly that. Giving takes faith. Giving to the work of ministry takes faith. It takes faith and trust in God's faithfulness in providing for our daily bread. Now, there's a reason that we pray for that in the Lord's Prayer. You know, a lot of us, I think, myself included, we kind of assume we have everything we need because we have everything we need. We forget that we have that because God gave it to us. Your next meal, you may have three freezers in the garage full of food. Your next meal is from God. And without God, you don't have one breadcrumb to your name. God provides your daily bread, even if he provides some of it ahead of time for people. right? And so we pray for our daily bread. We acknowledge our dependence upon God for even our next meal, even if it is just literally bread. Tithing, giving 10% on a regular basis. This, you know, I was tempted to say, this sermon is about tithing. No, it's not. She didn't, did she give 10%? Did she break out a clippers and cut one of the coins, you know, a corner off one of the coins and say, okay, we're good. She gave more than that. But tithing, you know, some of us that's a small thing. Some of us that might seem like a big thing. That takes faith. That says, God's going to provide for me and my family, even if I do this. That if God asks me to do something, it, it, it's not going to be to my detriment. It's not going to be for my for my harm. Now, she didn't just tithe, she gave sacrificially. Many of you, I know, give sacrificially. 
whether it be for the work of ministry, for, for missions, for the relief of, of the poor, for the widows and the orphans. It takes faith to do that. It takes faith to live on less than what you, what you have. It also takes love. As we said before, the rich young ruler, it takes love for God and love for our neighbor. We don't give because God needs something. God needs nothing. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need us. God could do perfectly well without us. He'd do better without us in some ways. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, verse 1, and all the fullness thereof, and then what else? The world and all those who dwell therein. He owns us. Now, if you're a Christian, he owns you twice over. He made you and he redeemed you by sending his son. He's purchased us with the blood of his only begotten son. Psalm 50, verse 10 says that God owns what? Some of you know this for good reason. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The context is sacrifices, right? When God commanded those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the psalmist is saying, hey guys, don't forget, you're not giving God something that isn't his already. This, you're not, you're not you know, paying God back. You're not bribing God. Those are God. He owns all the he, God doesn't need cattle. God owns all the cattle. And what does God even say? He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Does, does, does the Lord eat the flesh of bulls and goats? Is, is God up there hungry? Is that why they had sacrifices? No. No, he needs nothing. He's the one that provides all that we have, and we give from faith, we give from gratitude for that provision, and we give from love for God and love for our neighbor. Well, the third thing, we've seen the widow's offering, the widow's faith, and I think the last thing is, I hope it's, it's obvious, but the widow's example. The widow's example. Um, and why do I say that? Well, what does Jesus do in the passage? He sits there, he sees, he notices, and then who does he call over? The twelve, the disciples, and says, hey, he calls their attention to this action of, of this widow in verse 43. And then on top of it, he says, truly I say to you, he wants to make sure they get the point of this, of this thing that happened. So this was no small thing in our Savior's eyes. He wanted this lesson to be firmly planted in the, in the minds and hearts of, of his disciples, and not just the twelve, but us as well. It's here in the scripture for our benefit, right? Now, when we give to the work of ministry, we have the privilege of giving back a portion of what God has entrusted to us. When we give to the poor, the same thing. Whether you're sharing in the work of the gospel, foreign, miss foreign missions, or the relief of the poor, uh, you're, you're, you're trusting yourself to God and giving back a portion of what he has given and yet how many of us have even a tenth of the faith of this poor widow? I, that's not something that I have a natural gift for. And back in the 1850s, some of you know who J.C. Ryle was, an Anglican pastor uh, of, of, of a century or so ago. This is what he writes about this passage. He says, The stinginess of professing Christians in all matters which concern God and religion is one of the crying sins of the day and one of the worst signs of the times. The givers to Christ's cause are but a small section of the visible church. Not one baptized person in 20 probably knows anything about being rich towards God, quotes Luke 12, 21. The vast majority spend pounds on themselves and give not even pence to Christ. I know we don't use pounds, but you know, dollars, pennies, however you want to put it. He says they, you know, we spend most of things on ourselves and give the leftovers to Christ. That's how most... He says that's how most baptized people in his day, and we probably would have looked at his day and thought, oh, this is, 
the you know this is like the golden era of the church, and that's what that's what Ryle thought in his day. Now, may that be not be true of us. May you and I be rich towards God and share in the joy of using even our worldly goods for good things that last, even the spread of the gospel. You know, there's there's not many things that we can use our money for that have an eternal benefit, but that's one of them. Whether it be the work of the church, the work of foreign missions, all these things, and even giving food and provisions to those who don't have uh, what they need. Why? Because God notices it. Even if nobody else notices it, God is pleased by it and uses it. In our giving also, we can reflect something of the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, if you're a Christian, you might not have two pennies to rub together. If you're a Christian, you're rich. You have more than Bill Gates could ever dream of because you have God. And, how, and why do you have God? Because Christ, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we by his poverty might become rich. So Paul says in that very same passage, he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What's he talking about? Giving. In this case, the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. He's saying it's an act of grace. The grace of caring for the needs of, the, of our saints, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, which uh, I'm, I'm very happy to say that I, I see. It's not my job to see, but I notice and people notice how you've cared for each other and how you've cared for those who have been the least of these in some sense among your brothers and sisters here in, in the church here in Ramona. Now this, this widow, this widow gave all. And think about this. Who is she a picture of, a reflection of in doing that? Jesus Christ. She's a, a, ref, a beautiful reflection of her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became poor and emptied himself, taking the form, as Paul says, of a servant, even having, what does Jesus say? No place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. Tell that to the prosperity preacher. Next time they say that you know, the, the follower of Jesus is supposed to have all these things, he's like, well, our Savior sent an example, and he didn't have anything. He didn't, he didn't have a house, didn't have anything to his... To his name, when he had to pay taxes, they had to get the coin out of a fish's mouth at the time. So she, she, she became like Christ. She was a picture of Christ who gave all for our salvation. We who are believers in Christ ought to be a generous people. We should excel in caring for one another. We should excel in giving toward the work of the gospel, both foreign missions and in the church here as well. We should excel in giving support for those things to the glory of Christ. And I'll, I'll say this. Uh, and I hope you don't take this and get up and leave, but if you're at a church, whether it be here or somewhere else, and you cannot give in good conscience, then find a new church. Find some place where you can in good conscience give, knowing that money is going towards the gospel and is glorifying to God in Christ. Could God do all these things, foreign missions, helping the poor, whatever, without us, without our time, without our money? Certainly he could. The God we serve is not broke. He needs nothing. He has given you and I the great privilege of sharing in the work of the gospel. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And that takes faith. It takes grace. 
Only the grace of God in Christ can bring about that kind of faith and gratitude and generosity in our lives. That, that does not come natural to any of us. Not me, not you, not anyone. I, I, we love ourselves. I love myself. I like to watch out for number one just like anybody else does. It takes the grace of God to get us to watch out for other people by the grace of God. May the Holy Spirit, our sanctifier, work in you and I that we might grow in grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, that, that you and I might excel also in this grace of giving. May we do that uh, knowing that we please and glorify our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sakes became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, first and foremost, for the gift of your Son, that you so loved uh, the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to lay aside your glory, your divine prerogatives, and take the form of a servant, and that you, though you were rich beyond all measure, that all for love's sake you became poor for our sakes, that we might be rich in you and have a mansion in heaven one day, be with the Lord forever in heaven. And we give you praise and thanks, and we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have been uh, lacking in our love for you and love for our neighbor. And we pray that you would work in us by your spirit. Make us a people that are generous out of faith and love and gratitude. Help us to seek to please you in all things, both our time, our money. Give us grace to give our whole lives to you, as Paul says in Romans 12, that by the mercies of, of, of God in Christ, that when we think of your, the mercies that you have had upon us and have upon us even now, that we would offer up ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, that not just our time and our money, but our very selves, our whole lives, body and soul, belong to you. You've redeemed us and bought us with a price. Help us to glorify you in all things. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, that you might open their eyes even today, that they might look to Christ and have life in his name, for it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.